Let's keep in touch, let's keep in touch, keep in touch with me. Drop me a line, Hey Mel, it's nice to see hey. you. Hey, it's great to see you. I know. Well, we are here to record part two of our season one wrap up. Um, Melanie and I have had a couple weeks since we talked on our last podcast episode and we really want to talk about things we learned like lessons learned that we took away from this season so Melanie boy I don't even know where to begin um one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was what was there anything that surprised you that you heard from you know not too much not too much but actually, one thing that surprised me, I'm thinking back to our conversation with John Lang. So I think he was maybe episode two, I want to say, or episode three, more, more, more. It's it's surprising to me, and it shouldn't have been, that the English language teaching and international education is, is suffering so much in Australia because I thought, well, but they're managing the pandemic really well. And, you know, like you can go wherever you want. Like, if you remember when we did our interview with John, uh, the COVID situation where I am in California was really bad at that time. And John is like at a, he's at like a market with tons of people there. Nobody's wearing a mask. Like everybody's sitting down. It was like just really kind of surreal. It was like, if you've ever seen 28 days later when they're kind of like it's post apocalyptic landscape and then a plane flies overhead at one point and you realize, oh, in other parts of the world they've handled this much better. So it was surprising to hear that their industry had been hurt so badly, but now it all makes sense because they just, one of the ways in which Australia has dealt with COVID has been just by not letting anyone into the country, which is a way to do it. And they just kind of made a decision that it was okay to destroy those industries. That's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say one of the things that really surprised me from that discussion was the just how much the the you know trillion dollar industry that that is in Australia. That number really did strike me because yes. I knew it was a big industry, but you know I'm trying to think if what is the parallel? What if there was just I don't know some other trillion dollar industry that was just cut off? Um, I guess air. I mean, I guess we had that with restaurants and air travel and yes, but everybody like was up in arms that you couldn't go to a restaurant or that it wasn't easy to travel. You know, I think once again, it comes back to the value of English language teaching, how we value that. And we don't value it as highly in some circles as we could in large part because you're teaching foreigners. That's actually my belief is that there's an imperialism and a racism that's kind of inherent in views towards English language teaching and international education. And so the result is the people who are working in that field, like working, I'm I'm talking teachers, one-on-one, any, any sort of academic management of that, they tend not to get as well paid as they would in another industry. Now, that said, to be fair, academia is like that, right? Like you are going to make more money as an engineering professor than as an English professor. This is just the truth, okay? And, and is that fair? I'm not saying it is fair. I'm saying that we value certain industries and certain groups over others. And that actually is reflected in, 
in in salaries but yes i think that's why they cut it off because well it's affecting foreigners and so who cares if we don't let a lot of foreigners and that's by the way the who cares is not my feeling (laughs) okay i just i very much do care (laughs) so yeah you know the value of course we had that all throughout the season we talked a lot about elt as a commodity which i think is something that you have so brilliantly stated many many times and it's just such oh, a i love it when you call me brilliant yes. thank you this is why we're friends um, and there were definitely some things that i as a an outsider was surprised about i remember one of the things that jeffrey shared with me when we were talking about english language teaching in korea and salaries and he talked very candidly about it's not a high salary and he has housing which makes a huge deal yeah but one of the one of the things that he said that like kind of made my jaw drop was that he said recently he'd been looking on dave's esl cafe Mm, and just looking at listings for teaching in south korea and the salaries i think he said they were like i can't remember how many won but like basically like two thousand dollars a month yeah but his point was I was making, what he said was, I was making $1,500 a month teaching English 30 years ago in Korea. That's shocking. Yeah, it was, it was really, really like, I I was like, are you kidding? In 30 years, the salary is basically the same. Well, that's true and it isn't, right? Because I'm sure he makes a better salary than that, whatever he's doing. But my point was like for, you know, for somebody who wants to go and teach, that salary marker hasn't really raised the entry much. level the yeah. entry level yeah. yeah and what i was going to say is what you would find on dave's esl who goes who goes to dave's esl cafe honestly many people Dave, dave's esl cafe has been around forever yeah it's it's still a place where where people go to get information but in my experience the people who go to dave's esl cafe tend to be people who are just starting out in English language teaching. So, you know, if you're advertising on that website, you can advertise, you know, to get lower salary people because the teachers, the potential teachers who are looking for a job there don't know any better and don't know that they could do better. It's also true too that, you know, that's just a sample of what he saw. So there are probably, and I have heard this, although I myself have not worked in Korea or Japan, but I have heard you can get like a really nice deal, a decent salary, really great working conditions in in Korea and Japan in particular. But I would doubt that those opportunities are going to pop up on a place like Dave's ESL Cafe. I suspect that you have to know someone. You have to have been there for a while to like make the connections that's going to lead to that job in most cases. And again, I don't know what the salary would be, but my guess would be that it would tap out around $50,000 a year, Um, which is, you know, by 2021 standards kind of low so when he and i i mean again i don't i I think i cut this out of the recording and i'll confirm with him that we can share this but his take-home pay was much lower than that wow part of the reason was because uh you know he has to pay into the taxes he has to pay into Mm -hmm. pension but he's not a citizen so he's never going to get that money back right so he pays so that you know those were some so when he talked about here's here's my 
salary amount, but then this and this and this and this comes out. That that that's that was a surprising statistic for me. And again, it's just one person, and you're right, it's not right. So I mean, and it is true. Like when I was in uh, the UAE, I was making around fifty thousand. I don't remember exactly what my salary was, but we're going to say it was around that. But then you have a lot of bonuses there. I mean, first of all, your housing is paid for, so that's a significant. Uh-huh cost that you are not making which essentially kind of gives you a raise plus they they give bonuses to you every year like you'll get some type of bonus at minimum you're going to get a housing bonus and a vacation well well, housing bonus if they're not paying for your housing so sorry uh, just to be clear you'll get a vacation stipend which allows you to go back to your home country so they will they will give you the equivalent of a round trip ticket for you and whoever's in your family like what they think it could be which means you could pay less than that and pocket some of it so you know there's a lot of this is why people go to the middle east and and the uae isn't isn't even the place that would pay the highest you know saudi pays the highest and also i i know people who are making more than me because they were either at different universities or they'd been there longer or they started with more experience than I did. So for example, if I went back to the UAE now, I could probably get a higher salary than I did then because I have more experience. And it's, it's, sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is one of the things that I think personally, I think that is important about talking about value and, and value as an employee is the salary amount. And yes. I, I have worked with bosses who were very red, who were like, never tell anybody your salary, never tell, because I had reports at the time as a manager, never talk to your reports about how much other people make. And I was like, well, I'm not going to talk about my, like tell other people. But I also know that that secrecy is what enables the inequities to continue. Yeah. Isn't it funny that that's our... (laughs) Our whole cultural taboo, which just benefits certain groups of people. Yeah, so I think it's important for, you know, anyone listening to the podcast, like you did share, how, how many years ago did you teach in UAE? I taught in the UAE uh, from 2012 to 2015. Yeah. But here's the thing about that. When I started there, they gave me a bonus. The bonus is like, it's it's not quite a hiring bonus, but it kind of is like- Is it like a moving- it's like a moving stipend and it 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 feels like a lot of money because it is you get like ten thousand bucks and it's to furnish your place because you frequently need to buy every single thing like you have to buy um, a stove you have to buy a fridge because your the apartment you end up in will not have those things but from what i understand at the time like at the time i was obviously super excited to be getting this big wadge of cash but actually many people were complaining that that was the same amount that they were giving in 2000 you know and i was there in 2012 so you know that was 12 years later so i think that does happen a lot like when a particular institution or organization initially begins trying to attract people the offer is is really attractive but and it's still attractive 10, 12, 15 years later, but it's just not quite as good as it was yeah. at that time. But, you know, sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. That's just how it is, right? Yeah. 
Um, well, I thank you. I mean, I think it's important that you did share your base salary and talk. And of course, you may, you know, like you said, there were other other bonuses and stipends, but it's important to know salaries. I think when you're in or you know in an industry, I think it's important to know what your competitive salaries are. Plus, that salary is a year-round salary, okay? And that is actually rather unusual mm. for many, many in the English language teaching, not all. But if you are a teacher, you may be teaching week to week. So your, your schedule will change depending on the week. Uh, you may be teaching semester to semester. That's very common. So one of the benefits and actually a reason that I went to the UAE was because I wanted a, a permanent faculty position to enjoy just having that stability because that is one of the things, you know, it's, it's one of the things that attracts people to English language teaching is that you have a lot of freedom and flexibility. You can, you can go to Thailand, you can go to Prague, you can go to Peru or wherever you want to go. But the other side of that is that there is this, as Julie Butters referred to it, this precarity in the industry, which many people that might be listening today will absolutely understand because we've all just been through it with COVID. Many, many people uh, lost their jobs. I know a number of people in the ELT industry who either had their hours significantly reduced or were let go. And some of those people, you know, this is the thing. Some of those people will be hired back. Some of them have already been hired back, but some of those people who might be very, very good will get other jobs and then they won't return and we'll just lose them permanently, which is a shame. Yeah. I remember John mentioning that one of his fellow teachers went into like concrete sanding or concrete flooring or right. something. And he said, well, he's making more money doing this than he was teaching. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and I, I feel that struggle because I, I love, I love so much about working in this industry. I love helping people. I love language. I love talking about language. I love to, I mean, look, this is why I was like, Hey, let's do a podcast. I love talking about this stuff. It's, it's, it's interesting to me. And I know I'm not the only person who finds it interesting. And, you know, I feel like it is a calling. So that's great, but I'm not like, <laughs> I don't need to be um, taking a vow of poverty to, to, you know, make yeah, my exactly. calling, right. And, and I think, I think it's hard because if you want to make a lot of money and have a secure job in the English language teaching industry, you can get that in an English speaking country. Absolutely. You can get that in the U S or can definitely Canada. You can get it. Um, or Australia or the UK. It is possible. And, and surely there are people listening who have that. Okay. But frequently, if you want a job that's going to allow you to have some sort of middle-class lifestyle and the security that you want of like a permanent position, you're going to have to go abroad. You're going to have to. And I, I think like, again, that's something that attracts people to English language teaching because you want to do that. But then eventually you're like, yeah, but I would really like a home 
to in in my country maybe i mean not mm -hmm. everybody feels that way of course there are some people and i know a number of people who have sort of they seem to have made a decision to be mostly permanently abroad mm -hmm. because the the deal they get is just better but i feel like but no i don't want to do that <laughs> i want a good deal and i want to be where i want to be why can't i have both why can't i have both part <laughs> uh, of my life i've known melanie as, as we talked about for like 30 years and uh, she's often said that that is what her uh like tombstone or epitaph should be why, why not both, both? <laughs> why not both yes oh boy i had like a point on the tip of my tongue oh this is about if you want security yeah yeah you have to live outside of your country well so that that or what we've heard and seen is you need to do something other than teaching in elt meaning yes. you have to go into administration or uh you know two of our interviewees both had different jobs in the publishing industry yes and yeah it seems like you need to go into some other aspect of elt if to to make to make more money if, if you really want to pull down the coin and and i mean you know this is like the uh, this is i think another conflict that exists within elt like if you decided to go into english language teaching the truth is you weren't initially motivated by money. <laughs> I mean, like maybe I, I'm not saying you aren't now because I feel like I'm very motivated by money. Although that's not the only thing that motivates me by far. But um, but that wasn't why I went into ELT, and it's probably not my number one motivation right now either. Like that, some people are just more money motivated, so they go into careers where you're gonna make more money immediately. So the reason I'm saying that is people go into English language teaching because they want the adventure or they want to help people or they just feel like it's the right place for them to be. I mean, that is really how I felt my first day of teaching. I was like, hey, this is like a great thing for me. But all of that said, you know, like any job, um, everybody deserves a decent wage. You know, you don't necessarily have to be a millionaire, although I'd like to be, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, to have the security where you can have a place to live and a secure job, this is something that frequently just doesn't exist in English language teaching. And the pandemic has to some extent made it worse because there are just fewer positions. Um, and I am not sure what will happen post pandemic because of that. My guess is that a number of countries will and are rebounding in terms of enrollment and sales and there will be an increased demand for teachers. But is that the right way to go forward? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I don't know if there's anything we can do to really change the industry to make it so that we value t I, I would love it my my fantasy is like oh look the elt industry like desperately needs teachers so now they have to double everybody's salary and give them way better benefits but the truth is teachers as a whole like there's no there's no teacher there's nobody who's working as a teacher who's fully valued in most situations you that's know i mean that that's just true. the case it doesn't matter if you are english language it's yeah it's not just it's it's a, it's a at least in the united states and in most western countries teachers are are currently undervalued quite a bit yeah yeah for sure 
I feel like this is really depressing. But I don't mean it that way. I no, feel like no. you got to um, look at reality because then you think, okay, well, what can we do to make it better? Absolutely. Absolutely. And talking about it, even though it's a painful topic, is I think a really critical step to making change. You mentioned what will happen. We talked a lot about changing and the impact of online teaching being more acceptable and people learning how to do it more effectively my dad was just telling me about a friend of his daughter whose daughter is teaching English to Chinese students yes. from the U.S. And he said, yeah. you know, so she gets up at like 2 a.m. and yeah. gives her class. A lot of people are doing this. And so that to me is really interesting. And it segues in some ways to your upcoming book, which we're working on. Yes. For me, I see a movement from emergency online teaching, which is what yes. we have here, to this emerging standard practice. And I think that's really exciting. But I think that, as you note in your book, it's important to have some pedagogy around it and have some standard procedures that any teacher could be trained on or be able to pick up, just like traditional teaching lesson plans and classroom management, that it has its own unique things. And when done well, it can be successful in the right situation. It was interesting, if you recall, when we interviewed Joy, she said that in the future, there'll be a degree for this stuff. And that when we were going to school, that there wasn't a degree for this. I mean, obviously, now there's instructional design and educational technology and all of that. That is a lot for, not entirely, because this is built into academic programs as well. But um, a lot of that is like how to, if you're going to be creating online courses, how do you do it? How do you develop it? But that's not necessarily, if you're going to teach online courses, how do you do it? And I, I think we wasted a lot of time last summer But when I say that, I also feel like, well, what can we do really? Like, if you recall, there was such a big debate. Should we go back to school? Should we not go back to school? It's been very interesting to me to be watching. And I I say this with a tremendous amount of privilege, I think. It's It's been very interesting for me to watch the surges of coronavirus around the world and then compare them to places that have had more vaccination rollout like the United States where that that surge has gone down. I mean, we are still having one, but if you look at the numbers, they're kind of going down a little bit. And I feel really sure that in the fall, we're gonna be able to go back to school pretty safely. But last summer, we spent all this time going back and forth, should we go back to school or not? And then in the end, a lot of places did, but then they had to close quickly because of surges. And so we're still, I mean, everybody has learned a lot about being online. There's no doubt about that. Most teachers have learned a huge amount of, of being about being online, but we're still not quite in a place where I would say, hey, we're experts. We have a good system in place for this stuff. Hold on one second. Rob says hi. He's he's hi. in the background. You just can't see him. Um, <laughs> okay. So I think what we need and what we haven't really had is like a full, let's truly develop our online. So some places are now starting to do that. And I, I mean, it's interesting here in Los Angeles, I, I'm seeing billboards for big universities saying, hey, take your classes online. Like they've just realized, oh yeah, we, we can do this. But I also think 
so many things need to be worked out. So if you remember when we talked to Beth, she was talking about how she hated the hybrid method. And quite frankly, I don't blame her because what she was having, what she was having to do was try and teach students online while also teaching students in a classroom. I know a lot of teachers are having to do that right now. And quite frankly, I do not think it's sustainable because the style of delivery is so different when you're in a face-to-face -face classroom compared to an online classroom. So no matter what, someone's getting shortchanged. And I suspect it, in that case, it's the online ones because there are only like two of them compared to 12 in, in, in a face-to-face -face classroom. But these are the types of things that we need to work out. Like, how are we going to do a hybrid? To me, a hybrid model would be something where the students worked from home a couple days a week and they came in to school a few other days a week. And if you did a situation where somebody never came in, you need to have a teaching assistant or somebody to be that working with them. What I was going to note, I, I was talking with a colleague of mine who's, uh, I think his son is in third grade and it's in the US. Um, and he was describing his school's hybrid model. And it is a very nice school system. It's a very nice community that he lives in and they can afford to they he said they have the teacher teaching the you know in-person students and then a second teacher's assistant or a team teacher I think he said they were doing team teaching um, a team teacher who is basically giving the same lesson online yeah. and that's a really cool idea but we just talked about how hard it is to pay teachers and to for teachers to make money and so the reality of most school districts being able to provide that is well, it's not real. It's not realistic, I don't think. And so they get into what Beth and Jeffrey both described, which was, I have students, I have some people online, I have some people in person, and I keep teaching to the people in person because, and I forget about those guys online. Yeah, it's just so easy. It's, it's, yeah, I, I just think you're asking too much of a yeah. teacher to have to, I mean, the method of delivery, and this is another reason I wrote that book, is that there are things that you can do in a face-to-face -face classroom that you can easily do online and vice versa. But there are some things that are really fundamentally different as I think we all know right now. And there are some techniques that just work better online than they do in a face-to-face -face classroom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One other thing that I thought was really interesting over the past year, not just in our podcast, but over the past year and talking to you, some of the teachers is just how creative they've been with doing online classes and yeah. using technology and using, you know, different virtual learning environments or just what they have on hand. When we did our teach-a-thon last summer, Caroline McKinnon did a really interesting demo where she just talked about the, I think she called it web questing or something. And it was, uh -huh. a oh yeah, it was a web quest. Yeah. With her online, with her students. And it was really just using search, talk, discover, discuss and to me that was such a creative I'm sure I was for again outsider but it was a creative way of using what was available because they weren't face to face gosh we just saw so much of that over the over the past year what what have been some other techniques that you have either taught or heard about for online yeah you know, one thing that I have tried to do, and, you know, I'm not sure if it's the right, if there's a better way to do this or what, but I feel like one thing that feels like it's really missing in an online classroom is this sort of organic 
bonding chit chat that happens in a face-to-face classroom you know you can turn up in your face-to-face classroom and say hey how's it going today somebody will say something if you get there and 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 there's only two students who are there you can have a conversation with them but it's much harder to do that in an online space so i've done a lot to sort of develop a conversation with my students the first i'm i'm on a semester term so my first class i frequently will have them write me something very short and I have them email it to me and then I will write back. And I have a couple different assignments like that throughout the early part of the semester, especially where I am not necessarily giving them a grade, but actually just responding to what they said and sort of starting a conversation. And then in the middle of the semester, I organize conferences with all of them where I am like chatting with them about their paper and things like that. And, and one of them did pick up on it. They said, I feel like in this class, we're talking to each other in a way that we're not talking in my other classes. And it was all, it's all kind of my design. So that's, that's a technique that I've used to kind of get that, that bonding going. I've also done a couple of things where I've really maximized my breakout rooms. And I try to, you know, the breakout rooms are kind of hard because again, in a face-to-face classroom, you would be monitoring those students. It's very easy to just like kick back and look like you're not paying attention to them, but actually you're, you're really watching them and you can step in and guide as you want. But in for breakout rooms over Zoom, you have to go into the room. And so the second you're there, if they notice you, they're like, oh, hello, professor or whatever. But I try and set up activities where they're with the same group throughout the semester. So they have like four or five people who are together with them. So they're making a connection with some people. And I will always try and add a little bit extra time to those breakout rooms a little so that they can just chat with each other. So that's something I've been doing, but I really think actually giving them a group that they're going to hang out with through a, a, an extended period of time is really good. They, they get to know those people. And, and the truth is, this is not always successful because some students, depending on their age and their motivation, you might put them in a breakout room and then they do nothing. And I have certainly had it happen where I've gone into a breakout room and everybody's camera's off and they're all on mute. And I'm like, okay, uh, what are you doing, man? <laughs> Looks like you're doing nothing. I mean, hey, that's what students have done throughout time. And from, the, from the first. Is, is not do what you asked them to do. Anyway, I have found those things to be really good Personally, I've also encouraged my students to make the most of our chat as well. So, I mean, I, it's interesting because I have two classes this semester. One is definitely chattier than the other. The class that's chattier, they use the chat all the time. They will actually say something, like they'll just break out and say something in the middle of a lecture, which is something that happens frequently in a face-to-face classroom, but happens a lot less in the Zoom. And my other Zoom class, they're they're much quieter. I feel like sometimes I'm just talking and nobody's there. So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, that technique that you were talking about of sort of setting up campfire groups or so many terms. Yes. The one term that Beth used or that they were using in her school was cohorts that they have yes. a group of cohorts. And um, I f- personally, I found that absolutely charming because <laughs> the fun use of the word. Yes, it's your graduate cohort. <laughs> well, what are we going to talk about next, Melanie? I guess one thing I think would be interesting to talk about is 
I hate to leave the conversation with just like, oh, it's so bad. You know, they don't pay us enough and blah, blah, blah. Okay, first of all, we all know that it is known as as they've said. But what I really want to say is that actually, if you are an English language teaching professional, you have a lot of value and and skill. So I'm thinking about, and, and this is not for everybody, okay? I'm thinking about people we know who have made a transition outside of teaching in a school. And as I say, some people are very happy to just teach within a school. And, and if, if that's you, that's fine. But if you want to do more than that, there are so many options available f- to you because there are so many skills that you develop as an English language teaching professional. One person we have not had on our show that I would love to have on the show is Chia Swan Chong, who I did my graduate degree with. She has really branched into communications and international communications and that, you know, I mean, look, that, that lends itself so smoothly to everything that English language teachers do because you're constantly dealing with different cultures and countries and you're having to navigate communication gaps all the time. The other thing too is we know people who have started their own businesses. So our first interview was with Ann Crutchfield. I know that she's doing great. If, if you recall, one of the things she said that really stuck with me was that she spends so much time advertising and marketing. And I think That is one of the challenges for those who want to transition is that you do have to develop skills that you maybe don't feel so comfortable in. So it could be advertising and marketing. If you recall, Joe and Fee said that about Mm -hmm. what they have been doing is that the skill set that they're using to write and to do their business is not necessarily what they were doing as teachers. So I guess it's really all about you. If you are happy just teaching them, just do that because we need teachers and I think it's a great profession. But if you want to kind of branch out, there are lots of different ways in which you could do that. You could start your own business. You could move into publishing. You could move into sales. You can move into international education. There's a lot that you can do because this is the other strange side of VLT is that there is actually a tremendous amount of value among the professionals who who do this in this field. So so there's a lot you can use this for as a springboard. Yeah, there's so many career path opportunities. And not to say that it's easy to do. Goodness knows, Melanie and I started Bounce English several years ago, and we're still really struggling to, not struggling, but we're still working at building the business, laying the foundation, picking, you know, getting customers. And if you're going to go into your own line, that is something important to, to expect that you're now an entrepreneur and you have to be able to balance your love of teaching, which is your core skill versus these, like you said, these new skills and things that have to get done in order to make a business grow. But there's also just, it seems like there's so many opportunities also in the professional world. (laughs) One of the things I kept thinking about was um, we talked a lot about anyone can teach English all English teachers are replaceable. And a couple of things that jumped out to me 
Well, first of all, the one that anyone can teach English, that really reminded me of that movie Ratatouille. I don't know if you remember that cartoon. I've only seen the trailer, but I do know of it. So there was part of this, I guess, lesson was that this chef kept saying, anyone can cook, anyone can cook. But what they said was, it's not that every person can cook, but every person may have that skill or that talent within them. And you shouldn't judge just because someone isn't French or isn't human, I guess, (laughs) in the movie. But, and I think that that is important to remember for teaching that now there is more focus on having education, certification, skill sets, but there's also this fear that I'm, you know, people are just going to get wiped out because we just saw that happen in the last year. Yeah. I am a business, I am not a teacher. I've worked in the professional consulting world for a long time. And I will, the one thing if I could share with the audience is that nobody, everybody's replaceable. Yeah. So it's, it's not just your industry. Everybody's replaceable. You know, I know it sounds harsh, but a lot of times people feel like they're really important to an organization and they probably are, but you know what? I was going to say, well, I am really important, Amy. So. (laughs) Well, absolutely. One of the things that happens though, is then people feel so protective of their work that nobody understands how hard it is to be me. Nobody understands how hard it is to be an academic director or an assistant to a director or a teacher. But the truth is any, everybody's replaceable and that's true in any industry. And in fact, that is actually valued in professional industries. I uh, worked with a woman at my previous company who did our human resources. And she said, you know, it's very common. We're in technology. It's very common when you're looking at resumes and technology to look for people who haven't been at a job for more than five or six years, that Mm. length at a job in the technology forum shows a lack of ambition. And isn't that crazy? And I was like, well, I've worked there for 15 years. (laughs) And I don't think that that's necessarily true, but it was more kind of a story or an anecdote, but I would just encourage all, all of the teachers, all of you teachers out there to embrace the fact that you are replaceable and think of it more as you're replace able meaning that you have skills that you can absolutely pivot and carry on to a different position. And it might be a position that you never thought you would go for or something you wouldn't think would come in, come into, but you have developed these skills, you have value and don't be afraid to toot your own horn and ask for more money (laughs) and, and don't be afraid to walk away because there are positions out there. I think, again, I'm talking from a business standpoint, but people who climb the ladder in the working, the professionally and non-educational world, they tend to do these things. They tend to look for new opportunities. Don't, you know, don't be afraid of being, thinking about being replaced. Think of it as an ability that you have to pivot and move on to something else. So basically what you're saying is not like you yourself are one day we'll just replace widget A with widget B. Although that is kind of what you're saying. What you're really saying is you have skills that are transferable. It's you don't yes, have to you. be a barnacle in to the, the good ship, whatever. And that's interesting. And I just want to say this when I was much younger, I was very concerned 
because I had, I felt like I had moved to, from a lot of different jobs. I'd done this job for a year and a half. And then I went and did this job for two years, whatever. And now it's like, the world is caught up with me. They like that. <laughs> they see that like, oh, oh, I would, I the one caveat I would say that this HR lady said was, well, you know, you don't want somebody to move a job every year. You want to see that they're there for a couple of years, have developed a skill, have contributed and now we're ambitious enough to move on. And by the way, everybody, I'm a complete hypocrite. I haven't updated my, I have not updated my LinkedIn profile for like two years. As Melanie knows, I am constantly like, oh, I'm not good at my job. So I'm a hypocrite. I accept that. But I would encourage everybody to take my advice. <laughs> uh, I updated my LinkedIn profile like I think two weeks ago. But I, I think I probably update my resume and my LinkedIn like every six months or so. That is fantastic. Everyone should do that, really. Thank you. Basically, be like me. No, it's no, right. just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. There were a couple of things from that from our COVID discussions that that kind of jumped out at me that I thought were interesting. It's been a difficult year, more than a year now, we'll say 18 months or so, but it's been a challenging time for everybody. Educators, like so many people in so many industries and so many people who weren't even working, rose to that challenge and did their best to create great materials that did help students learn. There are lots of students who learned a lot of stuff in spite of the pandemic. But the truth is, the pandemic was also a very traumatic thing for all yeah. of us. You know, Beth, Beth made the point that it's the reality is we're not going to understand the effects of this for at least 10 more years. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're still in it and you just got to keep moving forward and the time for reflection is in the future. <laughs> it, it's funny because now that, I mean, it's, we're recording this end of April, 2021. We started our recordings for season one in December, 2020. I feel like we're in a very different place yeah. than we were at that time. And I have just taken a trip from Chicago to Los Angeles. What was, um, I, I really felt at the airport okay, I guess this pandemic is over. I mean, it's not, it's not. But there were so many people there. People were close together. I am totally vaccinated. And I was thinking to myself, man, I hope that vaccination works. And I hope these <laughs> other people are vaccinated too. But also like I spoke to some friends who just came back from a trip to Hawaii. They said every single place they went had like a two hour wait. All right, mm -hmm. so the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think- you know, things are quote unquote, going back to normal or going as they were. And kids are going to be right back in school. They're going to be back with their friends. Many of them already are. They're going to catch up on a lot of this stuff. This is what I mean. Kids are resilient. If they didn't learn thing X when they were 12, they can learn it when they're 13. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my attitude. Yeah, for sure. You know, the, the thing that made me chuckle, and I think, I think it was Jeffrey again, he's just a more recent interview so I've, I've i've tremendously valued everybody we've talked to and had like so many interesting takeaways uh but the other thing he said that was funny is that so quickly after covid started his students started using it as an excuse to not get their shit done <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i gotta say fall 2020 
I can't tell you how many emails I got from students who would say something like, well, you know, I mean, it's been really hard with the COVID, blah, blah, blah. And of course it has, it has, you know, it actually in all cases, I was just like, sure, fine. But they, they know they can use that excuse. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know? like, and hey, let's be honest, Amy, think back to our own college days. Would oh we God. have used that excuse? Oh, yeah. And my my dad's just really <laughs> suffering because of the COVID. I can't get this paper done. <laughs> and my professors would have absolutely been in the right to say, uh, COVID didn't give you that C on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. It did. <laughs> oh, well, so, Melanie, what's happening with Bounce English? Where are we going from here? Well, uh, I think we've done some really exciting things recently. We you know, we did this podcast. That's great. We've done a little bit more focus on the types of training we deliver. So we just created some great materials for training corporate clients. And also we have a couple things on the docket where we're uh, delivering some training workshops to organizations. So I'm speaking to an organization at the end of May in Columbia about training and I just did a workshop this week. So that's kind of what we're doing. You've also written a short book about- Oh yeah, and I wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote a book. It's a fast read. It is all about how to make online teaching more engaging and effective. It's called From Panic to Pedagogy. So it's this idea of moving away from holy crap, I have to teach online. What do I do? Which I think many of us have now moved away from that and are looking to improve our skills with that. Because even as we go back into the classroom, we can't unring that bell. There are too many people who actually have really thrived online. And I don't know. I mean, I... I, for one, I know they're going to want us back at, at, at the place I teach. I'm, I'm assuming they will want us back on campus in the fall. I have already said, hey, I'm very happy to be your online person if you want one. So it, my point is there are teachers and there are students who have really um, found online teaching works well for them. I, I, I like both. I'm sure like if you remember, Amanda said, when you go back in the classroom, you will feel like you're on a high. I'm I'm sure that's true. But I also am very, very happy doing trainings from home. I'm amazed at how easy and fun it's been. So I wanted to share some of the techniques that I've learned and just some of the things that worked for me in a, in a very simple book for people who want to get better at online teaching. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot of interesting parts to it. We, It'll come out probably early summer. We're still trying to figure out the, how to, the best approach for distribution, but it has some really, really great stuff in it. So as we think about moving forward with the podcast, I think the theme of where do we go from here has been a, a big one. Yeah. We kind of want to put COVID to bed for, uh, you know, <laughs> to some extent. What are, what are you thinking for this next season? Well, I mean, COVID is not over, obviously, but I think as more people get vaccinated, and I really, really hope we do more to vaccinate um, countries that have, we do more to help countries that have had less success getting their populations vaccinated. But as, as more and more people get vaccinated, 
COVID is going to be more and more in our rearview mirror, I think. And we now have a new world. So the question that has really stuck in my mind is, where do we go from here? What does, oh, <laughs> what does English language teaching look like? In a I know you didn't see that audience, but Rob just snuck up on Melanie and gave her a little kiss. <laughs> Yay, that was really nice. So how, how is teaching in a post-COVID world different? We're going to go back to the classroom, but what will we keep? Because we will keep things. So that is a question. And I would like to explore more deeply this question of value. And I think this could possibly be of interest to our listeners, how you can take some of the skills that you've developed as an English language teacher and what else you can do with them, how to go further with English language teaching, whether that is to further develop your skills as a teacher within the classroom, which is a very useful and worthy thing to do with those things, or whether you want to take those skills and go into something entirely different. But this is sort of what I'm thinking would be very interesting for the next season. Yeah, for sure. We don't have a plan yet of when we're going to release the next season we we still have to schedule interviews and um make our plan there so we are going to take a hiatus i don't know for how long we will be back because we really love doing the podcast and loved talking so much to to everybody and And thank you thank you for listening hey if you have any suggestions anything you want us to cover in season two get in touch with us email us at talk to us at bounce english talk to us at bounce english dot rocks yeah. We can't afford the dot com extension. Yet. Yet. Yet, Amy. Yet. 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 So yeah, that's about it. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for being a part of this magical journey with us. Yay. Yay. Thank you for listening. You're awesome. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Cool. Peace out, oh, yo. Bye bye. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch. Okay. Are we ready to roll? roll? Yeah, I I didn't prepare in the way that I I don't know. I felt like I was going to study and review, but I didn't actually do that. I just that's okay. Winging it is a very acceptable, (laughs) and it's very tough. Uh, Not for everyone, but uh, winging it is certainly something involved in the tough way of life. So for sure. Probably your most relevant would be talking about, you know, English language training, talking about that precarity. 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 God damn it. <laughs> Can I put that word right? Surprise. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch.